I'm Holiday. I'm Tarrant. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Over there. <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warm? Picture it. Sicily. 1922. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Killers, Cults, and Nut Jobs 2.0, where we cover all crime. I'm your host, the Great White Snark, Scotty J. And once again, joining me on this fun filled adventure is the lovely and beautiful Monica. Hi. Okay, we're taking a little break from Jim Jones right now because uh, Monica had brought it to my attention that our first three Manson episodes sound like crap. Yep. Hopefully uh, this won't be better too since I had to like you've changed it around again. So right. Well the, the problem is is you could hear her perfectly, but you couldn't hear me. Yeah, so I, hopefully I was, it's not switched around. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I was I was waiting for, you know, a, a joke like, you know, um, you know, they, they they're tuning in to listen to you anyway, you know, not my velvet fog here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely going to try the Chromebook again for right. Just so in a very special episode, which I should cue up the uh, 1980s very special episode music here. We all remember the special episodes in the 80s, you know. Oh yeah. You know who can That's remember? Pure, who can forget the different strokes episode where Dudley got piddled? By Mr. Carlson from WKRP in Cincinnati. Well, I saw that, well, long ago. Like, right. Rerun, but not recently. Rerun hasn't seen it. Or the Punky Brewster, where her friend got stuck. Oh, in yeah. The, the, refrigerator. the, the refrigerator. Yeah. That was mm-hmm. a good one. Or the Hogan family, where the house, um, like, burned. Ah. Uh, well, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. vaguely, but yeah. Oh yeah, it became that the one Hogan. Stuck with me. I remember. Yeah, I watched that one first run. Yeah, what well, became the Hogan family when Sandy Duncan took over? Yeah. Uh-huh. Speaking of Valerie Harper, when we were in Hollywood Forever, you saw her grave. My mom and I. Yeah, well, I saw her grave, and her husband was there watering the flowers there. Oh, that is so grave. sweet. Yeah, that is and. Yeah, and Anton Yelchin. I'm yeah. pretty sure I saw his mom. Oh. But I know for years him either his dad or his mom would just like sit at the grave, like from opening till closing. I think oh, wow. they got that a little bit and maybe they just go and check on stuff because but it looked just like from pictures I've seen of right. Um I'm, I'm trying to think. Oh, it was the guy who played Boner on um, Growing Pains. His dad was the original Chekhov. Oh, yeah. And actually, he's at Hollywood Forever, too. Chekhov or Boner? Yeah, the Boner. But, oh, um, Boner? I couldn't find, yeah, I couldn't find his grave, and he was on the list of the... Eh, I can skip, so... <laughs> yeah, knowing my luck, if I went out there and saw that, I'd probably meet Mr. Chekhov, and I, you know, I'd have to be respectful because he is visiting his son. 
but I'd been like, yeah, it was like I did. Yeah, we were there like a couple times, but I did have to go back and see Virginia Repe and um, William Desmond Taylor since their 100th anniversaries had just passed. Well, you know, I'd seen them before. Uh, I was Virginia, like, Virginia, she's the uh, Fatty Arbuckle one, right? Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. He got railroaded. Oh yeah. Okay. Before we get into into uh, the redoing of Manson here, I'm going to make a quick announcement. Um, I know those of you longtime listeners who have been with the show, Phil and I always had this rule about OJ that we weren't going to cover it because it's OJ. It's too well known. Well, guess what? The kid gloves are off, folks. One of my recent book purchases was If I Did It, the OJ murder book. He also did the one back in 94 of like he where he answered people's questions in the book oh form too. I, I I don't remember that one, but I was in Barnes and Noble and I saw if I did it, I'm like, I have to get this. Yeah, back in 94, he did um people's questions and like while I was in jail, and then he you know answered oh. answer, yeah, with air quotes. But, oh, um, I, I, I can't I that's going to be 20 years. Yeah, in what? A week. Yeah. Or so. A week or two, something like that. Yeah. Well, June 12th, so. I'm trying to find it's, a biography on OJ to, to add some backlog to the story. Oh, well, I, I did see him in 2002 when the NBA All-Star Game was in Philly. Oh, Oh, I thought you saw him when he was in his uh, orange jumpsuit for uh, the Vegas incident. Yeah, no. It's like on South Street, I probably where another like shooting was, but. Okay, folks, so, we are going to. Yeah, uh, way off topic. <laughs> right. We are going to jump into uh, the redoing of Charlie Manson. Now, as we all know, Charlie is. A, Charlie is pretty famous. I mean, pictures of Charlie are everywhere. Um, I'm surprised I don't have one hanging up in my room, but I did know. Yeah, I did use a picture of Charlie Manson as my profile picture for a little while on Facebook. I had to take it down. Well, I had to take it down because it reminded family members of uh, my father. So I, I took it down. Yeah. But I mean, you know, is Charlie a case of nature versus nurture? Was Charlie born a bad seed? You know, we know that he liked to play the, the victim. And, you know, then people look and are like, um, no, Charlie, you, you started this shit. So Charlie is one of those, um, you know, we'll, we're never going to know the answer on that because Charlie's dead. Yeah. So in 1928, we're going back to 1928, folks. Ada Kathleen Maddox was born in Rowan County, Kentucky. Her father was a railroad worker and her mother was a religious woman. I know quite a few of those. She grew up in Kentucky, but as a teen, she began to cross the river and head into the town of Irontown, Ohio to, um, we're going to put air quotes around this, have fun. Now, during one of these trips, Kathleen was 15, and she met a man named Colonel Scott, who was 23. 
They began to meet pretty regularly, and by the time she was 16, well, Kathleen was pregnant. So she did what every woman does in that tender moment. She goes and tells her, her soon-to-be betrothed that uh, she's pregnant with his kid. Well, when Colonel Scott heard this, he told her he was being called away on army business. What Kathleen didn't know was Colonel Scott was not his name, nor was he in the army. And ladies and gentlemen, he was married. It took her several months to realize that the colonel had no intention of taking care of her and the baby. Now, history has not told us how Kathleen knew or met William Manson, but on August 21st, 1934, they were married. On November 12th, Charles Mills Manson was brought into the world, kicking and screaming and covered in his mother's internal fluids. Now, being a teen mom and a wife was not what Kathleen had planned for her life, and she still went out at night to party. When she went out, Charlie was left with his grandmother. Well, William got, uh, you know, William got tired of this, and after two and a half years of marriage, he divorced Kathleen on April 30th, 1937. Before everything was finalized, Kathleen went into Kentucky to search for, uh, for Colonel Scott, and she found him. And she filed the bastard suit. Now, Colonel Scott said in court he was the father, and he may have seen Charlie a few times. The court ordered him to pay five bucks a month for child support, but as most as deadbeat dads, Colonel Scott didn't do it. Oh. Yeah, cough, cough. But yeah, okay. You're right. You know, you're yeah. speaking from experience there, aren't you? Oh, uh, yeah. Kathleen and Charlie stay with different family members. While there's no record of Kathleen looking for work, by October 2nd, 1938, she was engaged to James Ruby. The engagement didn't last as it was assumed James had some convictions for bootlegging. Kathleen, one of her friends, and her brother were arrested on August 1st, 1939 for unarmed robbery. Kathleen was sent to Moundsville Prison in West Virginia for five years. Charlie, at the time, was only five years old. Charlie went to live with his aunt, uncle, and cousin in McMeacham, West Virginia. His family found out he needed to be the center of attention. If no one paid attention to him, he would cause trouble to get attention. That's uh, a lot of attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah Charlie, well, I, I wouldn't know anything about that myself. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Charlie also had a knack for lying about everything. There would be no rest with Charlie around. On his first day of school, Charlie was in the toughest teacher's first grade class. The teacher proceeded to tell the class that Charlie wouldn't amount to anything and humiliated him for the rest of the day. He went back to his uncle's house crying. While Charlie would later exaggerate the truth. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oof. He would ex exaggerate his like life's history later in life. This time he was telling the truth. Once his uncle found out that Charlie was crying, he had to teach him a lesson. The next day, he sent Charlie to school in one of his cousin's dresses that he had to wear the whole day. Boys don't cry. Only girls do. Who Charlie would remain. Uh, yeah, his uncle then. Yeah, well, that was back in the day when, you know, 
Children didn't listen to the parents. They got to taste the back of their hand. Yep. Charlie would remain a poor student. He was picked on because of his small size and his mouth. But for some unknown reason, he could get the girls to do what he wanted. When one boy picked on him, he got some of the schoolgirls to beat up the bully. Oh, when asked about it, Charlie said it was their idea. Charlie also liked to start trouble and blame it on others, like most kids do. Uh, Now, Charlie had one love in his life, and that was music. He also developed an interest in guns and knives, which, yeah, as a young kid in uh, West Virginia, you need to have some guns and knives around the house. I just went through West Virginia a couple weeks ago, moving my daughter, and my son said, Dad, this is a good place to either hide or hide somebody. Depending on what day of the week it is and. Right. Well, I said I kind of looked at him and said, um, "You've really thought this out, haven't you, Bundy?" Uh huh. Now Charlie could play the piano by ear, and he had a good singing voice. His family had to drag him to church, but once he got there, the music kept him interested. He managed to survive two and a half years living with his aunt and uncle. In 1943, Kathleen was released after serving three years of her five-year sentence. The family made it clear that Kathleen was not welcomed around them, uh, so she hit the road with Charlie. Life was not easy for the two. Violin music cues up. Kathleen still went out at night, leaving Charlie with some very questionable people. Now, Charlie began skipping school and started stealing small things at first. By now, mother and son landed in Indianapolis, Indiana. As an adult, Charlie would say that his mother was a teenage prostitute, but there's no record existing that backs this claim up. As Charlie continued to be a problem child, Kathleen found a new man in her life and a place to try and help Charlie, the Gibalt School for Boys. The curriculum required religion, and boys who misbehaved often received a paddling. Reminds me, you ever see that Simpsons episode where the townspeople had to take over? Staring at my beard. Oh, that's a paddling. Yeah. Using the class canoe. Oh, that's a paddling. Now, Charlie would later claim that he was beat every day with paddles the size of baseball bats. What is typical with Charlie, we can assume that this is a lie. We can assume that Charlie did receive some discipline, but not as much as he claims. Charlie managed to run away and make it back to his mom. But being mother of the year, she sent him back to the school. Ten months later, he escaped, but went to the streets of Indianapolis. He would break into buildings to steal money so he could get a room, but this would get him caught. He was sent, you know, he was sent to court where the judge sent him to Boys Town in Nebraska. Charlie was 13. Is this still okay? I guess yeah, this is still, yeah. okay. Well, I, I didn't make my notes on this one like I thought I did. Uh, okay. Boys Town was the best place in the country to send wayward boys. Uh, some of you might remember um, Spencer Tracy and Mickey Rooney did a movie back in the 40s called Boys Town. Yep. And, um, well, Mickey Rooney didn't grow much past, you know, the age of 13. So, but it, it, I, I think it brought... I, 
barely remember the movie, but um, I guess it was a big hit. I don't know. Bruce, I've never seen it because not a big well, Mickey Rooney or Spencer Tracy fan. Concerning right. I, I guess it was good. I mean, it brought some attention to the foundation of Boys Town. And um, I, I want to say Irish priest started it because Irish priests take no crap off of anybody. A kid misbehaves in front of an I a, a kid misbehaves in front of an Irish priest and he points up to the crucifix and goes, That could be you, boyo. Settle down. Straighten the kid up, you know. Charlie loved Boys Town so much he ran away as soon as he got there. You want to tell everybody about it. Right. He wanted to tell everyone, you know, hey, I went to this really great place. You want to come see? Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing a science fair project on um, on escape velocity. Charlie and another student stole the car and made their way to Peoria, Illinois, which those of you who love comedy know that Peoria is also the home of Richard Pryor. Yeah. That's a whole nother subject, but. Peoria is the home of Richard Pryor and uh, East Peoria was the home of Sam Kinison. Two major influences in my life. And in now, Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> if you guys ever travel through this damn state listening to Spotify, there's a, we got a commercial for the tourism board. I think Jane Lynch does it because she's from here. Uh-huh. And she sings the she sings the state name. She goes like Illinois, Illinois. And then at the towards the end, she goes, Illinois, no, no. It just irritates me. I, I turned the volume down on that part. Yeah, I can see how that would happen. <laughs> well, yeah, I heard it coming from Springfield like every five songs. So it, it was just annoying like, as hell. Yeah. The cars for kids. Right. Along the way, our would-be criminals decided to commit two armed robberies, which was a huge increase in Charlie's criminal resume. Well, after two weeks on the run, he was captured and sent back, sent to the Indiana Boys School in Plainfield, Indiana. Heck. And again, later in life, Charlie would claim that he was raped immediately after he entered the school. Despite his small size and knack for getting into trouble, there's little doubt he was raped. To protect himself, Charlie created the insane game where he would make wild arm gestures and facial expressions to scare away some of the bigger inmates. Um, there's a great video um, on YouTube that shows this. He's got like his head head shaved back to like the middle of <laughs> the middle of his skull. Oh yeah. <laughs> And he's like making the faces and like, and then there's one where he's like doing this freaky little dance. So yeah, you can find those on uh, YouTube. Yeah. It's like, yes, we already know you're crazy. So you don't have to keep doing that. Crazy. I'm crazy for. Uh-huh. I figured I'd sing some Patsy Klein. So. Okie dokie. So. Great. Now you made me say okie dokie. In 1945, Charlie joined six other boys in an escape attempt. Before this, he had made four previous attempts to escape. Charlie was captured 12 hours later. 
Over the next four years, Charlie would escape and be sent to different reformatories across the country until his 21st birthday. The interesting thing to note, in all these institutions, Charlie was given a psychological exam. I mean, I'd love to have been the one giving him that one. Right. Each one said he was an adept criminal and he was institutionalized and he could play the victim card well. Each one also noted that there was no chance for him to be rehabilitated. You know how we got awards for everything? You know, I, I, you know, looking at this and seeing that he escaped numerous times, you know, they probably have like the juvie prison award system is like, okay, this year's winner for most escaped attempts, Charles Manson. All right, man, I, I, I'm happy to accept this award for all those ones who tried to escape. Yeah, man, we, we, we tried. We tried, man. Next year, I tried to do it more. Okay, there we are. At the age of 21, Charlie was released from the juvenile system. He returned to McMeckham. Right? Is that how he is? Uh, sure, really we'll go like with that. Right. Okay. Probably Where he found a job in a home. His criminal record made him an outcast amongst the tight-knit group of young adults in town. Charlie lived with his grandmother and went to the local Nazarene church with her. At church, Charlie enjoyed the hymns and memorized scripture, something that would help him later in life. While the townspeople rejected Charlie, he eventually found a girlfriend from Wheeling, West Virginia. And Wheeling's and not, he, I've been to Wheeling. If you can score a woman in Wheeling, you got some low standards. I was going to say, like, <laughs> it changed him. So it should be easy then, now, right? What was that? It should be easy then to score a woman there, then, right? Well, I mean, I've been through Wheeling, man. This this place. Mm. Of course, I was going through it like seven in the morning, so you know, sunlight had, sunlight hadn't quite got over the mountains yet. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Her name was Rosalie Willis. Charlie poured on the charm, and after knowing each other for a few months, they were married. Small towns loved the gossip, and the rumor was she was pregnant. I could change him, Mom. I know I can. I just love him so much. You might even know him enough for the, you to be able to say that, too. <laughs> right. You know, a few, you know, what was it? A, a few months they were married? Yeah. She, she hasn't yeah. learned. She hasn't completely learned all of his uh, mannerisms yet. Uh-huh. If Rosalie was pregnant, she lost the child. Charlie tried his best to accept to be accepted by the town with a young wife and picking up extra work around town. Well, Rosalie became pregnant, and Charlie fell back onto stealing cars to make extra money. Charlie stole a car and took Rosalie out to California to reconnect with his mother. Out in California, Charlie worked odd jobs until a police officer noticed the out-of-state plates. Running a check, he found the car was stolen. Charlie was arrested and received five years probation. True to his nature, Charlie ran to Indianapolis. Once he was captured, his probation was revoked and he was sent to Terminal Island Prison on April 26, 1956. While he was on the run, Charlie became a father. 
Well, Charlie had graduated to Crime University in prison. If I had graduation music or, you know, some college music, I'd play it in the background, you know. He hung around with the pimps and learned their secrets of controlling women. His mother, Rosalie, and his son, Charlie Jr., would come to visit him. Oh, that should have been his mother, comma, Rosalie, comma, and Charlie Jr. Well, after a while, Kathleen had to tell Charlie that Rosalie would no longer visit him. She was heading back to West Virginia and, well, guess what, Charlie? You're getting divorced. Part of prison terms were to have inmates learn a trade. So Charlie took classes based on the Dale Carnegie's How to Make Friends and Influence People. And guess what? He used that those lessons later on in life, folks. Now, Charlie was released in 1958 and embarked on a career as a pimp. But he found out being a pimp was hard work because pimping ain't easy. Many of the girls he tried to recruit still maintained close ties with their families. Since Charlie couldn't hold an actual job and being a pimp wasn't paying out, well, he went back on old tricks and started stealing again. He was caught for trying to cash a forged treasury check. Now, this was serious. And this so serious that it carried some serious time. But one of his soiled doves said that she was pregnant with his child and asked for leniency. This worked and he got a reduced sentence. So you'd figure, okay, I, I'm, I almost committed a federal crime here. I'm going to lay low. Not Charlie. He took a few of his girls over to New Mexico to turn tricks. Well, one of the girls got arrested. And this was in violation of the Mann Act, which carried federal charges. Now, for a refresher, the Mann Act was basically you couldn't take a girl across states for sex to, to perform sexual acts. Unless you were married. <laughs> So to try to save his ass, he married one of his girls to prevent her from testifying because spouses can't testify against each other. Charlie was still out committing crimes and ran to Texas. Well, when his, we're going to put the air quotes up, when his wife found this out, well, guess what? She turned state's evidence against Charlie and told the man everything. He was caught in Texas and sent back to California. The judge revoked his suspended sentence and sentenced him to 10 years at McNeil Island in Washington State. Charlie was 26 at the time, and he had spent the past 14 years in and out of the penal system. Uh, 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 penal. Hey, I'm excited they're coming back with a new movie, okay? Oh, they are? Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. Paramount Plus, uh, Beavis and Butthead do the universe. Uh, I'll have to wait for DJ. I had so many problems with Paramount Plus with, you know, pausing oh, and stopping. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just canceled it. So. When he got to McNeil, Charlie was in the master's program of crime. I caught my papers it blew away. <laughs> now, Charlie, like I said, we entered the master's program, so he started searching out teachers. While he was there, he came across a new religion that was sweeping the country called Scientology. And he began to incorporate their teachings into his own. Well, see, Charlie's got no luck with women because his second wife divorced him while he was in prison. I don't know if it's that Charlie has bad luck with women or that 
Charlie just marries the wrong women and they divorce him in prison because, you know, like the Tammy Wynette song, you should stand by your man. I was watching the Blues Brothers over the weekend. Oh, okay. While in prison, Charlie got to see the Beatles make their American television debut. This changed his world. He saw these four British guys have, have girls scream and throw themselves at, at them. So like most guys that you know watch a rock video, Charlie decided this is what he was meant to do with the world. He began to practice with his guitar, but yeah, he really wasn't the best at it. While studying music, he stayed out of trouble. During this time, he met Phil Kaufman. Phil had connections in the music business, which Charlie will try to exploit later. While Charlie wasn't the best guitar player and his singing was, not, was also not the best, Charlie was entertaining. Now, Charlie found out that he was going to be released in March of 67. Prisons were overcrowding and space was needed. See, Charlie knew that if he went out, he would commit crimes again, and he pleaded to stay in. But prison, prison officials were like, nah, get out. He was released on March 21st, 1967. Well, when Charlie came out of prison, he entered a world in the middle of a cultural revolution. The children of the boomers were re- uh, began to rebel against the morals of the older generation, and they became... The hippies. Hippies embrace. Yeah, right. Think of Greg Brady as Johnny Bravo, okay? Yeah, I like the eye roll on that one. Uh, this, this is what popped into my head, okay? Okay. I could have said David Cassidy, but he wasn't quite hippie enough. Hippies embraced drugs and a concept of free love and protested the American involvement in Vietnam, which was the first war televised in American homes at night. The world changed and Charlie went to find his place. He walked around the parks of the Berkeley campus. Charlie had seen guys playing guitars and preaching. See, being a rebel seemed really cool and that and young kids accepted it. Um, this was probably after uh, Rebel Without a Cause, where James Dean made being a rebel so damn cool, man. Oh, yeah. Well, it was the, well, it was the 60s, man. Yeah, that was the fifth. Rebel Without a Cause was the 50s. Right. It, it took the kids a little bit to catch up to it, you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, like how parts of the South are just now catching up to 2000. Now, while Charlie wandered, while during his wanderings, he first saw the Black Panthers armed and walking the streets. Now, seeing armed black men fed into Charlie's ideas of a coming race war, which he would use later in his preachings. While he was looking for a place for his place in the world, Charlie met 23-year-old Mary Bruner, who worked as a librarian at the Berkeley campus. And, and I kind of picture, I mean... I've seen pictures of her, but when I read this, I kind of think of um, the character Amy Farrah Fowler from uh, Big Bang Theory. You know, straight, straight brown hair, big round glasses, kind of mousy looking. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because I never watched that. So it's a good show. 
can never I, get into it. I said that and How I Met Your Mother. I can never. I, I never watched that one, but I like Big Bang because I could sympathize with the guys. Oh. Except for Raj, I, I think he was a closet homosexual, but I'm not sure. Now, Mary, as I said, was a librarian on, at the Berkeley campus, and so Charlie took all this knowledge he learned in prison. He focused his attention on her, and not long after, he got her into bed and he moved in with her. While he lived with Mary, he began to explore the Haight-Ashbury region of San Francisco. This area had become the mecca for the hippie movement, with hippies traveling across country to live there. Think of that scene in um, Forrest Gump where um, Jenna, she, she jumps in the van with the other hippies going to California. Charlie moved through the hate like a shark in the water. He found a spot in the park, began playing his guitar, and waited for people to come to him. He reinvented himself as a hippie guru, passing his knowledge of love and self-awareness to those who would listen. Most of the kids were smart and they didn't listen. They didn't listen to Charlie and he didn't hold his, didn't hold Charlie's attention. That is until Lynette Fromm came into the picture. Lynette was an 18 year old who ran away from home after another argument with her parents. Lynette had a history of emotional problems and had used drugs and sex to rebel against her parents. This is where you Charlie found, Yes, Charlie had found her sitting on a bench crying. Charlie approached her and began focusing his attention on her, telling her she was pretty and telling her things she wanted to hear. Which he every took, guy has done since the beginning of time. Yep. <laughs> Charlie started having sex with them then. Slowly, he brought Mary into it, and they began having threesomes, although Mary harbored some jealousy since she was Charlie's first. As summer approached, kids from all over the country began to arrive at the hate to be hippies. By this time, Charlie had a VW bus that he drove around. On one trip, he went to see a man he met in prison, Billy Green. Billy introduced Charlie to 19-year-old Patricia Krenwinkel. Pat had been living with her mother in the segregated South, but had recently moved to California and was living with her sister and nephew. Charlie spent the weekends working on Pat. By the end of the visit, Pat left with Charlie and she brought along her dad's credit card. Hi, Billy. I'm leaving and with Charlie. He's a nice guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> In the early fall of 1967, Charlie was at a friend's house playing Shadow of Your Smile. One of those listening was 20-year-old Susan Atkins. Susan believed that Charlie was a guitar virtuoso. Sure he was. Charlie began to work her magic on her, and she became a part of the group. Not long after Susan joined, Charlie took them to a pimp he knew. They had the girls turn tricks in the brothel. This was to test who would do what Charlie asked them to do, and it would become a tactic he would use whenever they were short on money. All right, honey, we need Women. you to go to work on the corner because daddy needs money. Nice. 
Benin fell for Charlie, but then proved harder to join his growing family. The first man who joined was Bruce Davis. Bruce wanted to be Charlie's second in command and was with the group when they moved to Los Angeles so Charlie could audition for Gary Stromberg at Universal. Stromberg was a friend of Phil Kaufman, who Charlie had met in prison as Charlie began to play. Stromberg lost all interest in Charlie, but noticed how the girls would sway and react to the music. Stromberg decided he liked what he heard and, and scheduled Charlie for a three-hour studio session. Well, the session was a disaster. The equipment and the engineers overwhelmed Charlie. Now, Stromberg told Charlie to go back and practice, but pitched his idea about a documentary focused on Charlie and his uh, family, which Charlie liked. After the disaster at the studio, Charlie met... Okay, I'm going to mess this name up. That's why, you know... He met Bobby B. Bosolil? Bosolil? Bobby B? Bosolil. Okay, Beausoleil. Like again. Like like before, we'll just call him Bobby B. Bobby B makes him sound tougher. Okay. Now, this is strange because Bobby became a true friend of Charlie. Bobby played guitar better than Charlie, although he would never admit it out loud. And he knew Gary Hinman. Gary was a music teacher who may have connections in the music industry. Bobby also was a drug dealer and had connections in the drug world. So his importance to Charlie was great. So Charlie, you know, got this growing group. We need to find a new place. The hate became crowded with too many new people and gurus, any of which could steal his women. Charlie thought about going out to the Mojave Desert. But after convincing the group that they should emulate the Beatles and go on their own magical mystery tour, they left. The tour took them to the Mojave, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas before they returned to L.A. at the end of the year. In 1968, Paul Watkins became the next male to join the group. Charlie enjoyed playing the two guys against each other. The men would work on the vehicles while the women would perform sex sex acts for money or go diving in dumpsters for food for the group. After the evening meal... The group would drop LSD while Charlie preached to them, then orchestrated everyone in an orgy. How the hell do you do that? Honestly, orgies are supposed to be spontaneous, man. If you're directing it, you might as well have some camera set up and film it, man. Could have made some money that way, too. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, This is Charlie Manson, and I'm going to bring you Girls Gone Wild on LSD. Now, during 1968, Pat Krenwinkel and a group of and a couple of the others were out hitchhiking when they were picked up by a nice looking man. This turned out to be Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. Dennis was everything Charlie was looking for rich, successful, and well connected in the music business. At this time, bands began having a guru since the Beatles became interested in Indian mysticism. Charlie became a guru to Dennis, being present wherever Dennis was. Since Charlie knew where Dennis lived, Dennis often came home to find Charlie and his family in the house helping themselves to food or shower or whatever. 
Dennis didn't say much at first since he was having sex with some of the girls in the family. Slowly, Charlie and the family began to wear out their welcome at Dennis's house. Another thing that bothered people was Charlie's ability to push people away. Often, he would show up at the Beach Boys' studio and act like he owned the place. Now, to be nice, you know, to kind of get this crazy man off his back, Dennis introduced Charlie to Terry Milcher, who was a record exec. Now, Charlie tried again to get a record deal, and after many tries, he got into the studio, but the results were the same. Now, Charlie was never one to admit failure. And he said the engineers just didn't get his message. Well, this was enough for Dennis since the family had begun to run up a huge bill at his expense. Dennis parted ways with Charlie, even moving someplace and not giving Charlie the address. We, we do that with my dad. Now, Tex Watson joined the group. Oh, it, it never, it always fucking fails because he seems to find us, man. He's got like a radar in his damn head. He, se- he seems to find us no matter where we go. He's the original GPS. Right. I can live on the fucking moon and he'll be there the next day. <sighs> Hi, son. What the fuck did you get on the moon, man? <sighs> now, Tex Watson joined the group as Charlie began to look for a new place to live. He sent some of the girls up to Philo, but they attracted too much attention. Bobby B. was sent up to check out the area, and he had a new girl with him. Leslie Van Houten, who was the hottest one of the girls at this time. I'm sorry, I said it before. I'll say it again. Leslie Van Houten was hot. After all these setbacks, Charlie moved the family to Spawn Ranch. Yeah, I saw you rolling your eyes on that one. Spawn Ranch was situated deep in the L.A. Hills. The ranch was used as a location for TV westerns, even leaving the building standing. Charlie made a deal with George Spahn, the owner, that the family would fix the buildings in exchange for them to live there. Charlie had Lynette keep George occupied, who was nearly blind and had no idea what was going on. Out at the ranch, Charlie could keep control of the three dozen people who followed him, and the temptations of L.A. were kept at a distance. Charlie had found out from one of his members about Myers Ranch out in Death Valley. He moved everyone out there to keep better control, but after numerous complaints, they came back to spawn. Then the heavens opened and brought a revelation to Charlie. The beautiful... That's what it sounded like, right? Yeah. Okay. The Beatles released the double album, White Album. What many people at the time were not aware of, the Beatles were having internal problems, which resulted in this being a double album. Charlie had bought the album and told his followers that this was a blueprint of what was going to happen. The song Piggies was how the rich felt entitled to the world. Blackbird was a prediction about the blacks rising. Revolution was a call to arms. Revolution number nine was the soundtrack with the eventual race war being called Helter Skelter. Charlie made sure that the family understood the Beatles meant all of this for them, and the Beatles were on their side. Because if, the if, if the Beatles were it, picking any side, they're going to pick Charlie Manson. Oh, yeah. 
you know, just doesn't it make sense to you? I mean, make, makes total sense to me, right? It, you know, it is about makes as much sense as my dad saying that the Bible's written for him to decode. So, by aliens, right? No, by the people who wrote the Bible thousands of years ago. Oh, yeah. They 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 left okay, messages so that my dad could find. You know. If anyone was going to choose uh, Charlie Manson's side, it probably would have been the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Because Keith needed the drugs. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, obviously, what's... I mean, what's... He's still alive, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, he's got something going on there. He's a Highlander. In the group? Yeah, he's been tickled so many times. Now, right. Right? <laughs> In the great scheme of things, the book of Revelations, as preached by Charles Manson, foretold the coming of both the Beatles and Charles Manson. On January 27, 1969, the Beach Boys released 2020. Dennis liked the song from Charlie's recording session, Cease to Exist, which Charlie gave permission to rework and re-record or record. The song was changed to Never Learn Not to Love and was the B-side to the single Bluebirds of the Mountains. They both sound kind of boring actually, but it was man, it this was is a Beach Boys fan too. I, well I heard when when I was doing this when I originally intended this as a, a solo act, I actually looked up these songs and never learn not to love didn't sound too bad. I mean, for a 1960s hippie drug fueled song. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think Cease to Exist was harder to find, but I'll, yeah, I'll try. Definitely. I'll try looking for it. Yeah. That's your, yeah, we, your homework for the week. Yeah, right. When Charlie heard the song, his rage was explosive. Not only was Charlie cut out of the whole process, but the song also stayed at number 61 on the charts, making it a failure. Having a failed song on the charts was a sure sign that there would be no record deal. Charlie still held, held out hope for Terry Melcher, but the world was changing. With the youth protesting and riots on the rise, Charlie felt that the family needed to protect themselves. So he began to train them on how to use guns, knives, and survival skills. The goal, as Charlie explained, was when Helter Skelter started, the family would hide out in Death Valley in a cave. When the violence passed, the African-Americans would win, but they were not mentally suited to run the country. That's when Charlie and his family would reemerge from the cave and lead these people in a new golden age. Yep. Charlie still wanted an audition for Melcher, but Melcher kept blowing him off. He would call Charlie would call the office and eventually went by Melcher's place on CeeLo Drive, only to find that Melcher had moved and left no forwarding address. See, another person that learned that, that from Dennis Wilson. If Charlie knows where you live and you move, don't leave a forwarding address. Because he will find you. That's probably where they got the idea of uh, hollow notes, private eyes. Oh, yeah. Private eyes. 
They're watching you. Oh. Well, he went by the place only to find that Melcher had moved and actress Sharon Tate and her director husband and future child rapist Roman Polanski were living there. On April 19th, the police raided the ranch on a tip. Several of the girls were arrested, but was later released. Tex was arrested a few days later for being under the influence. After spending a night in jail, Tex became meaner, and Charlie had a use for a meaner Tex. Terry Melcher finally got back with Charlie and said he would set up a recording date on uh, May 18th. Charlie was going to get his dream. Terry arrived and the family put on a show. After the audition, Charlie talked with Terry. Now, Terry knew a guy who had a portable recording studio. They would come out and record. Well, Charlie spun this into a success in front of the family. Terry really didn't think that Charlie was that good. I mean, there were thousands of guys on the streets playing the same style of music. On June 6th, Terry and Mike Deasy came to the ranch. Now, Mike had the, the portable equipment. Now, someone had slipped some LSD into a brownie that DZ ate, and, well, he had a bad trip, folks. This ended the chance for Charlie to record. He helped Terry get Mike into his van, and Terry pulled Charlie aside and just went, Charlie, you're never going to be a rock star. This was not what Charlie expected. But in his twisted worldview, he needed to tell the family something. So Charlie spun the story that Terry betrayed him, or them, just like the Bible and the Beatles predicted. This was a sign that Helter Skelter was coming. Charlie had taught the family how to break into places and leave new traits they called creepy crawling. Now he instructed the family to steal things when they went on their crawls. After the mess with Terry, Charlie had discovered where he lived and sent a crew there to rob him. Unfortunately for the family, Terry never linked the crime to them. Once he was away from the ranch, he never thought about Charlie again. Charlie was afraid of losing people after the loss of the record deal. He needed to do something dramatic, so he decided he could jumpstart Helter Skelter. Calling Tex into a meeting, they came up with a plan to get some money. The idea was to tell a buyer they had 25 kilos of prime weed. They would get the money and run. Well, from the beginning, the plan fell apart. Texas girlfriend, Luella, brought in a buyer named Bernard Crow, AKA Lots of Papa. Lots of Papa put up the money, but kept Luella until the weed arrived. Thing is, there was no weed to begin with. Tex brought the money to Charlie, and Lots of Papa called out to the ranch. Charlie stuck with the story that he had not seen Tex. Lots of Papa said he would kill Luella if he didn't get the money and the weed. Charlie had never cared for Luella, so Lots of Papa said he was a panther, and if he didn't get the money or the weed, the panthers would show up. Lots of Papa was never a panther, but Charlie didn't know that. Charlie agreed to meet at Lots of Papa's house. Charlie arrived and he brought along a gun. He had brought some of the family with him and wanted T.J. Wallerman to kill Lots of Papa. Well, T.J. was scared, so Charlie took the gun and shot Lots of Papa. They escaped back to the ranch, and T.J. left the group. 
Charlie was now afraid that the Panthers would show up. He posted guards around the ranch, and when there was an increased number of African-Americans on the tours, Charlie would tell the family that they were Panthers checking out their security. People kept defecting as Charlie kept ramping up the helter-skelter talks. You know, this man is crazy. I don't know. Let's go check out that uh, that Scientology group. They seem pretty okay. Uh-huh. You know, I, I've heard good things totally. about Ron Hubbard. We have a thousand dollars to take these uh, courses. Uh huh. They're going to have to be doing a lot more prostituting. Oh right. Yeah. If you ever get a chance, watch the watch on Netflix. Uh, Leia Remini behind Scientology. I haven't seen that. I haven't actually seen it, but I, I used to watch it on A and E. And man, the amount of money they have to spend on the courses. You're basically you're basically signing over everything you own to Scientology. Yeah, well, I've seen the Celebrity Center before. Oh, you have? Yeah, I mean, obviously not inside it, but I've seen. Right. And then um, there's on Hollywood Boulevard. Okay. It's not the it's not the like the main center, but there's another Scientology yeah. branch there. I'm don't worry. I'm looking up books on L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, goody. Okay, he asked Bobby Beausoleil to get his girl Gypsy to recruit some new people. It was during this time that Linda Kasabian came into the group. Death Valley was a place to go for now, and the family needed money. The plan was to rob Gary Hinman. On Friday, July 25th, Bobby, Mary, and Susan went to Gary's house. Bobby demanded $1,000, but Gary didn't have it. Mary had a gun placed on Gary, and he tried to wrestle it away. Bobby got the gun and gained control of the situation. Bobby began to beat Gary until he signed over two of his cars. Bobby made a call to Charlie, who showed up a few minutes later. Charlie brought a sword he always carried around and almost cut off Gary's left ear. Charlie I'm Charles left, Manson, Bobby Samurai. To torture Gary. During the torture... Gary said he would call the police. Bobby called Charlie and was told, you know what to do. Bobby stabbed Gary numerous times, killing him. As Gary lay there dying, Bobby took a towel and used Gary's blood to write political piggy on the wall. Days had gone by and there were no news reports on Gary's death. Bobby and Susan began to brag about what they did to whoever was around, despite Charlie wanting it kept quiet. On July 31st, some of Gary's friends came for a visit and found him dead. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Gary. Holy shit, he's dead. The L.A. County sheriffs came out and collected evidence. The killers were sloppy in their cleanup, and the police found a fingerprint. Since two of his cars were missing, the police put out an APB for them. Two days later, the police picked up Bobby B for driving the stolen Fiat. You see that? He never get caught driving the stolen vehicle. That's where Bobby B fucked up. Now, during the search of the vehicle, the police found the murder weapon because Bobby B decided to stash it in the wheel well of the car. Police had his thumbprint, 
And with the murder weapon and stolen car, uh, Bobby B was doing some time. He made a phone call to Charlie, promising not to rat him out. Normally in this situation, Charlie would run. In this case, he would go to the Pacific Northwest and start all over. But it had taken a couple of years to build up this group, and there were some loyal people in it. Things were spinning out of control. Lynette found him and said two of the girls were arrested for using stolen credit cards and needed $600 for bail. Charlie needed to be in control. So he called the family together. He announced to them that tonight Helter Skelter would happen. As the family went to get ready, Charlie found Tex and began to make plans. August 8, 1969. Charlie found Tex and began to give him his instructions. The idea was to make a copycat killing of George Hinman to save Bobby B in jail. Charlie sent Tex, Linda, Susan, and Pat to Melcher's old house on CeeLo Drive and kill everyone in the house. And amazingly, everybody agreed. Like, you know, asking if they want to play Monopoly opposed to, like, Parcheesi or something, you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. Just you know, another some, weekend night. Right, you know. What I thought was amazing was uh, some of our downtime at work, someone brought a Monopoly board. I'm like, you are expecting a fucking fight, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Monopoly has led to more divorces and in also, America. how long is the break going to be, too? Well, right, but I mean, when, when we're not working... Well, we're slow on work. We're down for four hours. So, yeah, that that's enough for like three arguments that's right still there. Not long enough. <laughs> You're right. Uh-huh. You know, four hours. That's like three arguments right there, man. Yeah. At twelve fifteen a.m., the group arrived at the house. Tex climbed up a telephone pole and cut the wires leading to the house. Tex gave the women their instructions as a car began to pull out of the driveway. Tex walked up to the car and slashed the driver, Steve Perrin, across the left arm and shot him three times point blank. Despite using the gun, no one in the house heard the shots. Moving closer to the house, Tex found an open front window. He slashed open the screen and entered the house. Moving in the house, Tex found Wojtek Frykowski sleeping in the living room. He awoke when he heard Tex giving the girls orders. Now, Wojtek asked, who are you? Tex kicked him in the head and said, I am the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business, son. Susan was sent to search the house and found Abigail Folger of Folger Coffee fame in a spare bedroom. And actress Sharon Tate and her former boyfriend slash hairdresser, Jay Sebring, in the master bedroom. Susan reported back to Tex, and Tex told her to bring them to the living room. Tex ordered Susan to tie up Wojtek's hands while he tied a rope around Jay's hands, looped a rope around his neck, and then threw it over a ceiling beam. He repeated the process with Sharon. Jay, being you know chivalrous there, tried to defend her, but Tex shot him in the stomach. As he lay there dying on the floor, Tex began to stab him. I know what Jay said when he got shot. Ah, shit, I'm shot. Ah, fuck, I'm bleeding. Yeah, that didn't. Yeah. Yeah. 
didn't didn't go over too well. No. <laughs> when he was done, Tex announced to the others that guess what, folks, you're gonna die. Well, Wojciech tried to escape like he did the Nazis, and Susan was ordered to kill him. I, I'm assuming Wojciech escaped, you know, escaped Nazi Germany. I don't know for sure. Susan and Wojciech wrestled to the ground while Susan stabbed his legs. Tex fired off a couple more shots and beat Wojtek in the head. Tex began to stab Wojtek in the front yard, killing him. While all this was going on, Abigail Folger tried to escape. Susan chased her into the front yard where she was stabbed to death. So when she was done with Mrs. Folger's, Susan asked Tex to make sure she was dead. Inside the house... Sharon began to beg for the life of her baby because she was what eight months pregnant at this point? Eight and a half. Okay. Well, being the heartless woman Susan is, she held her while Tex stabbed her. The house was covered in blood. Charlie told them to write something witchy at the scene. Susan took a towel and dipped it into Sharon's blood and wrote pig on the front door. Walking back to the car, Tex hit the button to open the gate, leaving a bloody fingerprint, which will become important later. You're right. Driving Tex is bad back at this shit, man. Well, the cops are even worse, so there we go. All right. Well, it is L.A., so. Yeah. Driving back to the ranch, everyone changed clothes and threw them out the window and disposed of the gun and knives in another location. They stopped at a random house to use a garden hose to clean off, but were chased off after they woke the owner. The owner was smart enough to write down the license number. When they arrived back at the ranch, they reported to Charlie. Charlie listened, but was upset that they only took $70 and that things had gone messy. He wasn't happy with the report, so he went back to the house and staged the scene. He wiped down the place for fingerprints and draped an American flag near Sharon's body. He left and went back to the ranch to sleep. At 8 a.m., the housekeeper arrived at Sharon's house. Housekeeping, Pluffilo. She walked in and left screaming down the driveway. She went to 170 Cielo Drive, got no answer, and at, went to 190 and Jim Asin answered. He called in the report at 8.33 and also called two more times. By 9.14, the police arrived. So about 45 minutes later. Oh, that, that's, well, see, what they forgot to say was for the LAPD to get out there was uh, black men committed to robbery so, or committed to murders. They would have been out there quicker. Yeah, are you sure it wasn't the Uvalde police? You're right. God, don't get started now. Okay, I'm. We'll how be here you, all night if I get started on them. How can you look worse than what Texas already does in the media? Exactly. And then, yeah. So, okay, we need to like, yeah, I need to get refocused. Otherwise, we'll be here for another three hours. Okay, everyone was dead. The police focused on the 19-year-old caretaker, William Garretson. When they found him in the guest house, 
He was arrested as a suspect and police believed that this was drug related crime. By late afternoon, Charlie had seen the murders on the news. While there was no mention of the Hinman murder or the Panthers, Charlie still felt this was not the spark that was going to start Helter Skelter. After the family celebrated and went to bed, he called Tex, Susan, Pat, Linda, and Clem together. They were going out again. And this time, Charlie was going with them to make sure it was done right. The crew drove around for a while before Charlie began to direct them to Los Feliz. The house they stopped at was recognized by three of the crew since they had party at the house next door. Charlie went out to check out the house. A few minutes later, he came back and got texts. The two men entered the La Bianca house and found Lino sleeping in the living room. Charlie woke him up and had texts tie his hands together. Charlie went through the house and found Rosemary in her bedroom and brought her out to the living room. Charlie went to the car and brought in Pat and Leslie. Then Charlie left. Charlie, before leaving, had also told Rosemary and Lino that they wouldn't be hurt, that it was just a robbery to oh, avoid. Man, we're the just going to rob the place, man. We ain't going to hurt you. Yeah. He was to try to avoid the whole messy scene. All oh, right. Yellow. Guess what didn't happen, Derek's son? Mm hmm. Charlie went to the car and brought in Pat and Leslie. Then Charlie, okay. Rosemary was taken to her bedroom, and Charlie told Tex to make sure everyone did something. Pillowcases were placed over their heads with a lamp cord tied around Rosemary's neck. Tex began to stab Lena with a bayonet while Pat began on Rosemary. Tex made sure Rosemary was dead. One of the assailants carved war into Lino's chest. Tex ordered Leslie to desecrate Rosemary's body, so she continued to stab it. They took Lino's coin collection and wiped down the scene. With a towel, they wrote, Rise, Death to Pigs, and Helter Skelter, misspelled H-E-A-L-T-E-R, with the victim's blood on the walls and refrigerator door. As soon as he left, Charlie had Linda wipe down Rosemary's wallet for prints and stole the money inside. The plan was to take the wallet to an African-American neighborhood, throw it out the window, placing the blame on a random individual who happened to pick up the wallet. Instead, the plate, they placed the wallet in a gas station bathroom. Charlie wanted one more crime. So as they're driving around, he asked Linda if she knew where the actor lived who had picked her up before. Linda took them to the apartment, but went to a different door, sparing the man his life. The next morning, the news was filled with the Tate murders. The police were convinced this was a, a ritualistic murder. Charlie watched to see if there was any messages about fingerprints that may have been missed. The LA police called about a case, a case that they were working that seemed similar, the Hinman murder. They had Bobby in jail over it. The police mentioned Bobby lived on a ranch with someone named Charlie. The police didn't believe that the cases were linked. Around 8.30 p.m., Frank Struthers came home. 
Finding no one moving, he went to call his sister. She arrived with her boyfriend and discovered their parents dead. Police were called and they thought that this was a copycat killing. It wasn't possible that this was connected to the Tate murders because, you know, why should it be? At this point in the investigation, the different police departments were unwilling to talk to each other. People were scared, but this was not the racial fear that Charlie wanted. The police never linked the crimes to racial violence. Charlie told the family that Helter Skelter had arrived and that people were coming for them. Well, guess what? Charlie was right. A few days later, on August 16th, the police raided the ranch. For months, there were rumors that a band of hippies were living there stealing cars. Police found the cars and arrested 26 family members, including Charlie. Unfortunately, the charges were dropped. When they returned to the ranch, Shorty Shea approached Charlie and attempted to kick him off the ranch. Charlie and a couple of others took Shorty out into the desert. Rumors spread that Charlie had murdered Shorty. It was now time to leave for Death Valley. This day wasn't as good as Charlie hoped. People kept defecting and complaining about the heat and sand. Fear of being attacked kept everyone paranoid. Charlie kept working. <clears throat> Sorry. Charlie kept people working day and night, and eventually the police raided on a tip of stolen cars. On October 9th, they were arrested. Some of the they arrested some of the people involved in the killings, although the police were not aware of it. On a second raid on October 12th, the police arrested Charlie. At this time, no one knew they had the ringleader of the murder spree. That is until Susan Atkins began to talk. While in jail, Susan began to talk to anyone and everyone about her involvement in the crimes. One of her cellmates, Kitty Lutzinger, had to wait until she was transferred before she could tell what she heard. The police were called in and they conducted their own interrogation. Another cellmate, Ronnie Howard, revealed details that the killer only knew to the police. By December 4th, Susan was in front of a grand jury. Susan revealed everything she knew and the grand jury indicted Charlie, Tex, Susan, Linda, and Patricia on seven counts of murder and conspiracy to commit murder. The crimes were solved. Now the trial would begin. And that's where we're ending this. Um, like we said before, our audio was really bad on it. You couldn't hear my velvet fog. Hopefully this one's better. <laughs> yeah, hopefully this one's better. Um, because I can't think I can do this again. <laughs> just... Right. Right. I don't think we got the energy to do this again. Yeah. Yeah, if you could tell, you know, by the time we reached the third part, we were just like, Man, like on the last legs of a marathon, you know. Uh -huh. But I uh, hope you guys like this. Um, yeah, I know we're on Castbox, we're on um, Player FM. I can't even remember half half the ones we're on right now. I'll. I'll you what guys do you have to do to get on Spotify? Uh, I'm going to look into Spotify this week, actually. So we can get on Spotify, and I'm still working to get us on iTunes. 
yeah, I'm, I'm working hard. I got that look like, come on, come on, fat boy, hurry up. Mm-hmm. I know. Hurry up. Yeah. I'm working on it. Okay. Oh, I've been saying that since episode one. So, hey, you know. Okay. Um, our next show will be back discussing Jim Jones. And uh, hopefully, I won't blow my voice out doing the preacher man voice that Monica so dearly loves. Oh, God, that's coming again. <laughs> hey, I actually did the preacher man voice for some of the guys at work, and they loved it. Well, that's true. That's what I said. That's when I really started. Like, oh, this is funny and well, yeah, informational. So, well, we were trying. Honestly, yeah, you know, honestly, back in the day, we were. I don't know where I was going. I was trying to be funny. I was trying to be informational. But I think this time around, I got the right balance for it because I'm actually doing research this time around. You mean I wasn't doing research? <laughs> You're right. My research back then was punching into Wikipedia what uh, what my show topic was. Jim Jones print. No, now that you know, now yeah, that I hope he checks Wikipedia. Well, there were people who would call us out on it. They were just like they're using Wikipedia because I followed it word for word. Michael, first of all, you have no fucking life if you're following it word for word, all right? Yeah. And and two, like, I, uh, I was listening to some podcast. Well, and the, the thing is, is yeah, like, they were talking about Wikipedia. Too. I mean, well, yeah, I, I, you know, I've used it now to kind of back up the research that I've read. Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, I mean, like everybody's not. Like, honestly, everybody, like, knocks Wikipedia, but for the most part, I found that it's, like, it is, I mean, pretty good, as long as, yeah, it's the stuff, you know, backed up to. Right. They had one for Jim Croce, they said, like, he had a daughter. I'm like, what? No, he never. Didn't he have a son? Yeah, he has one son, and actually, Ingrid, they had um, another son that I think like died like right after he was born too. As I know, like when I did the Gacy, when I was doing the Gacy script, you know, I was double checking everything because I read uh, Killer Clown, so that was referenced. You know, that was cited a lot in the in the script. So I was like, okay, well, they're pretty yeah. dead on. Mm-hmm. I've done it a little bit with uh, Jim Jones, and. Uh, I was double checking with uh, Patty Hearst and the SLA, but they um, they were a little skimpy on the info, so I, I just relied on the book that I read. Yeah. But yeah, Patty Hearst is, is our next one after Jim Jones because there's tie there's there's overlapping um, elements of the story. So, you know, like I said, you, uh, we are, um, you know, podcast or 
Podbean, uh, Castbox, Podcatcher, Player FM. Um, anything new? If you're following us on our Facebook page, I will post there where we're now heard at. So keep keep updated there. And for Killers, Cults, and Nut Jobs 2.0, I'm Scotty J. Say good night, Monica. Good night, Monica. This concludes our broadcast day. Good night and God bless.